0: Patty read for us Genesis 13, and I had her read that so that my sermon wouldn't be even longer because we're going to be looking at Genesis 13 and 14 this morning. In Genesis 4, earlier on in, in the story, Genesis 4, verse 26, we read that to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's this uh, pattern in Genesis of people calling upon the name of the Lord. Fast forward to Genesis 5. In the genealogy of Genesis 5, we read about Enoch. It says, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 365 years. Enoch lived, and we only get a few sentences about his life. We we can glean a little bit from the life of Enoch, and a few biblical authors, the author of Hebrews, uh, Jude and his letter, they comment on Enoch, but there's not a lot there for us to work with. We can only learn a little bit about Enoch's life because we're told so little about him. Contrast that with Abram. Abram, we're introduced to him in Genesis 11 when he is 75 years old. And there in Genesis 11 and at the beginning of chapter 12, God initiates a relationship with Abram and makes promises to him in Genesis 12. And when we are told of Abram's death in Genesis 25, he's 175 years old. So 365 years in four verses and 100 years in 15 chapters. This extended look at the life of Abram, it's incredibly helpful for us. Abraham's experiences, Abraham experiences success and failure. He faces hard and confusing decisions. He hears God's promises, but then he has to live in light of God's promises in the real world. He changes, but he changes slowly and imperfectly. Abraham's life is a case study in sanctification. Sanctification is that slow process of becoming more like Christ, becoming more who God calls us to be in light of who he is. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson, he's the guy that wrote the Message translation of the Bible, Eugene Peterson said that sanctification is a long obedience in the same direction. Sanctification is that slow walk of godliness. Salvation is the one-time event where we hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. We enter in to the family of God. We become children of God, and as children, our future with God is secure. It's, it's a done deal. But the work that God does in us to make us like Jesus in character and obedience and trust, that's a slow process. And that spans our entire life. That, that's what we see here in the story of Abram. Chapter 13 and 14, we have three decision points, three situations that Abraham, Abram encounters. And we see him choose Godliness, choose obedience, choose trust. So let's, let's follow Abram in these two chapters and let's see the decisions that he comes to and the ways that he trusts in the Lord. So first, in chapter 13, we have this interaction between Abram and Lot. Back in uh, chapter 12, God had made a promise to Abram. God, Abram was living beyond the river And God called him, go leave your family, leave your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you, which is the land of Canaan. And God says, I'll give you that land. And so Abram responded in faith and obedience. He left all that he knew, and and he went. But then a famine came to this promised land. And Abram packed up and went to Egypt, where there was food. And there, in Egypt, Abram failed. Abram failed to trust God and failed to honor his wife, and instead he used his wife to protect him, where he should have protected and served her. God spared Abram and his wife Sarah, but Abram was exposed as a sinner needing a savior, just like Adam and Noah before him. Now here in Genesis 13, Abram returns to the land that God had shown him. Look at verse four. It says, verse three, he journeyed from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we are exposed? God has revealed himself to us. We know what is good, we know what is right, and we flop. We take the coward's path, or we lose our temper, or we act selfishly, or some other failure. What do we do next? Abram went back to where God had told him to be in the first place. Abram returned to the altar he had made. Abram worshiped God and called upon the name of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, Isaiah is speaking through the prophet, and he's speaking to a sinful, wayward Judah. The people of Judah. They were, they were not walking in obedience. So God speaks to them and he says to them, Judah, in returning and rest you will be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength judah you're out there come home in return will you find salvation in the quiet presence in my quiet presence that's where you will find strength but maybe that's you you need to come home to jesus You started well, you heard Jesus' call, you followed him for a time, but somewhere you took a left turn. Your warm, vibrant pursuit of Christ has turned dull and cold. You were walking with Jesus, but if you're honest, you haven't been for a while. You haven't picked up your Bible. You haven't prayed. You haven't been in church that often. You haven't been engaged in community. You haven't had obedience to Christ at the forefront of your mind. You haven't been living for his kingdom. But you've prayed. You can return. You can come home. Pick up again the calling that Christ has given you to follow him. He will receive you. Abram finds himself in Egypt, walking in disobedience. He says, what am I doing here? He returns, returns to the altar that he had made and calls upon the name of the Lord. And so having returned, Abram begins to behave differently from his behavior in chapter 12 in in Egypt. We're told that Abram has become rich with livestock and servants and gold. And, and so has Lot. Abram and Lot, they've both prospered. Their herds have expanded. They're nomadic herdsmen. And the place that they're staying doesn't have enough to support both of them. They're, they're running out of room. And because they're running out of room, their herdsmen are quarreling, fighting over the best pasture. And so Abram suggests that they separate to make room for one another. He gives, and, and he gives Lot the first choice. Lot, you pick. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. And, and we're, we're told that in verse 10, Lot looks, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's this Jordan Valley. It's lush. It's well watered. It's like the garden, but it's also like Egypt. There's, there's signs of trouble even here. Uh, Moses, the author, he's foreshadowing some, some problems. And so Lot looks and he sees this is, this is good land, so, verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Never go east in Genesis. It's never a good idea. Moses, Moses is giving hints to the readers here. Remember, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, and what does God do? He cast them out of the garden to the east, out away from the presence of the Lord. And then in chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. God punishes Cain, and Cain goes further east, further from the presence of the Lord. And now here in chapter 11, Lot looks east, and he says, that looks great. That is where I want to go. So Lot journeys east, and we're told in verse 13, In verse 12, Abram settles in the land of Canaan and Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot looks east, sees green, and goes east. Even though going east means living among the wicked. Here's these men who are wicked, but I want to go there. Now, we're told in verse 3 that Abram had set his tent up between Bethel and Ai. So here's the city of Bethel, here's the city of Ai. And in biblical context, place names mean more than they do here. So you think here, if someone says, hey, I bought a house between Northfield and Faribault, we would say, okay, I know where that is. There's a geographic context to that, but that's it. Northfield is named Northfield because a guy named John North started the town. Faribault is called Faribault because a fur trader named Alexander Faribault set up a trading post. That's it. That's all that it means to us. But in in biblical context, there's more to it. There's the geographic context. We can see where Bethel and Ai are, but there's more to that. Bethel means house of God. And Ai means heap of ruins. So Abram has set himself up between the house of God and between the heap of ruins. Bethel to the west, Ai to the east. Lot goes east. Lot moves toward the heap of ruins, which leaves Abram with what? The west, the house of God. So Lot has taken the better portion in terms of lush valley, good pasture, land. And so what's left for Abram is less immediately appealing. It, it, it looks less, it, to the eye, it looks less appealing. And so what is left for Abram? What's left for Abram is God. Lot gets the best that the world has to offer, but Abram gets God. And we see that in in the text. Lot goes east, settles in Sodom. 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, North and south and east and west. For all the land that you see, I will give to you, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, so, for I will give it to you. So Abram is alone. Lot has left, but Abram's not alone. After Abram, after Lot leaves. God speaks to him again. God reassures Abram. God reiterates and expands upon his promise to Abram. Here's the land that I said I would show you back in chapter 12. It's all going to be yours and your offsprings. And by the way, that offspring that I promised to you, it's going, your offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so in chapter 13... If you only have God, you have enough. Psalm 84. Psalm says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wicked. And that's Lot and Abram. Lot says, I want to go live in the tents of the wicked. Abram says, I would rather just be in God's presence. I want to go where the altar is. I want to call upon the name of the Lord. Lot has chosen the riches of life to the east with wicked men. Abram is with God, and it is a better portion. Abram has chosen the better thing. So that's the first episode. That's that's the first time we see Abram choosing the Lord instead of the things of earth. And then we see the next scene in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, the early returns on Lot's decision are not good. Abram, or Lot chooses to live in Sodom. He's moved to this fertile, abundant valley. But in chapter 14, we find out it's a rough neighborhood. In, in verses 1 through 10, we're introduced to, t- to nine kings of various city-states. And they don't play nicely with one another. So we're not going to read all of them, but you've got these wild names like Arioch and Keter-Leomer and Shemeber, the king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela. So these, these wild exotic men from these wild exotic places, there's these nine kings who don't play nicely, and a band of a group of five of the kings... And one commentator, he calls them pirate kings. So this group of kings goes to war against this other group of kings, including the king of Sodom. And the group that attacks the other group, including the king of Sodom, they defeat Sodom and its band. And because Sodom is defeated, Lot and all of his possessions are captured. So Lot is now... Has now been captured, and Abram is told about this. Verse 13: Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. So Abram is told: Lot is in trouble. Lot has been captured. Everything Lot has has been taken by, taken by these pirate kings. And now Abram faces the decision: what is he going to do? What will he do for his kinsman who has been captured by a coalition of armies? The safe, easy option is, of course, for Abram to do nothing, to write Lot off as a lost cause. That happened to Lot. I'm sorry that it happened. What can I do? But Abram doesn't do that. Abram courageously gathers his men. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So here we're given more insight into what was said at the beginning of chapter 13. Abram is rich. We, we often think about Abram and Sarah as this kind of small mom-and-pop operation, a couple people living in tents with maybe a few camels. That's not what we're, that's not what we're told. Abram is a wealthy man. Abram is like the CEO of this nomadic tribe. There, there are likely over 1,000 people in Abram's group. 318 of them are, are trained fighting men. So he's got this small militia. And, and Abram takes this small militia, this 318 men, and they go to battle against this army of four city-states. And they emerge victorious. They rescue Lot, verse fifteen. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hoba north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. So Abram goes up against these kings, he's far outnumbered. Here's a, a coalition of armies against this little band of 300. And that's a pattern in Scripture. You have Gideon versus the Midianites in Judges 7, where Gideon, with his 300 men, goes up against this vast army and defeats them. You have David, little David, going up against Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And then in 1 Samuel 30, you have David against the Amalekites in a very similar situation, where 400 or so of David's men fight this army of Amalekites. So this is a pattern in scripture. And what's happening here is Abram goes up against these long odds because he believes God's promise. Abram believes that those who bless him, like his kinsman Lot, will be blessed. And those who curse him, like these marauding kings, will be cursed. They have numbers and strength on their side, but Abram has the Lord of Hosts on his side, and that's enough. So back in chapter twelve, God had said, "Abram, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse." And so Abram says, "Okay, let's do it." Takes his men and fights. And so for us, our, our main con- our main concern shouldn't be what's safe. What's prudent? What is likely to succeed? What is popular? And then let's do that. Rather, we should be asking, where is the Lord? What is right in his eyes? What is he calling me to? And then go do that. It's, it's like in the book of Daniel, when you have Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar creates this idol, And tells everybody, worship my idol. Worship, bow down and worship me. And everybody's doing it. But these three men say, we're not doing that. We're not going to worship this idol. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, God can deliver us from the fiery furnace of your anger. From the consequences of disobeying you. God can deliver us. But even if God doesn't deliver us. We will not serve your gods or worship your idols. So that's what Abram's doing here. Listen, God can deliver me if my 300 go up against this army. And even if he doesn't, the right thing to do is to walk in obedience. I believe that God will bless those who bless me. I believe that God will curse those who curse me. And I'm going to act on that belief. So that's scene number two. Scene number three is Abram. Abram rescues Lot, and he has an encounter with these two kings. Verse 17, after his return from the, from the defeat of Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, meet Abram, at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest. Of God Most High. So you have Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and Bera, the king of Sodom. Now, there's a lot more detail about who Melchizedek is, what role he plays, and how the later biblical authors pick up on him. But that, that's a whole other conversation. That's a different sermon that I'm not going to preach this morning. So there's a lot about Melchizedek that we're not going to talk about today. But for today... Just contrast these two kings and their interaction with Abram. Melchizedek was not part of the fighting and chaos of the other nine kings. He's, he has not been on the scene up till now, but and then he emerges here. So he has not been a part of the fighting and chaos. And Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Melach king, Zedek, righteousness. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And his kingdom is Salem, which means peace. So here's the king of righteousness, who's the king of peace. And he is described as not only a king, but as a priest. Priest of God most high. And Melchizedek blesses Abram and calls upon the name of the Lord, as Abram has been doing. So verse 19, he blessed him, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here's this peaceful king of righteousness, blessing Abram, blessing God, calling God the possessor of heaven and earth, and then you have Bera, the king of Sodom. And we've been told that Sodom is a place of wicked men. So Bera, this king, is the king of this wicked city. He's been part of the fighting and chaos of chapter 14. And he's been beaten. And he's, he has relied on Abram to come and bail him out. And he wants to go into business with Abram. Verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Let's make a deal, Abram. You give me the people so that I can expand my influence and my power, and you take the stuff. You take the spoils of war so that you can in your wealth, so that you can become even more rich. So here's this decision for Abram. Here's Melchizedek king of righteousness, king of peace, and here's Bera, king of Sodom, king of the wicked men, trying to make a deal. And Abram embraces Melchizedek and Melchizedek's approach. He gives Melchizedek a tithe of everything. So instead of enriching himself, he gives a gift. He gives an offering. And he says no to the king of Sodom. Replies, verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Tells the king of Sodom, I don't need your stuff. I have lifted my hands to the Lord, to the, to the God most high, to the possessor of heaven and earth my God owns everything and he can give me whatever I need and certainly more than you can. I don't want people to say the king of Sodom made Abram rich. I want people to say the Lord made me rich. The Lord has blessed me. The Lord has provided for me. And so we step back. What has, what has gotten into Abram these past two chapters? When we look at chapter 12 and his failure in Egypt, what has changed for Abram in these three scenes? Abram has heard God's voice. Abram has seen God's faithfulness. And Abram has seen that when he strays from the path that God has called him to, it doesn't go well. He's seeing, when I go down the path of, of self-sufficiency and, and uh, trust in myself, and selfishness. There's nothing for me there. It's a dead end. It doesn't work. But when I step into obedience, the Lord acts. The Lord meets me. The Lord answers me. The Lord fulfills his promises for me. So for Abram, Abram is saying, God has spoken. I believe, and I'm going to act on that belief. I'm going to move in accordance with that belief. Abram looked back on what God has said, and he looked ahead to what God promised he would do. I'll make you great. I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land. And in the middle, here's what God has said. Here's what God will do. And now I live in the middle. I'm going to trust and obey. That's the life of faith. That's us. We're in the same position. Abram had these theophanies hearing the audible voice of God, seeing, having these direct encounters with God, we have the word made flesh. We have Jesus come down to heaven to speak to us. Abram had the promise of the offspring of the woman who would come. We have the reality of the son of God, who Galatians 4 says was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive Adoption as sons. Abram said, I believe God will send a rescuer. We say, I believe God has sent a rescuer. We believe that in Christ and through Christ's death to save us and through his resurrection, which guarantees our freedom, God has done everything we could ever want to earn our trust. And, that it, and we believe that it's good To trust him christina and i we we regularly remind each other god always blesses obedience when when we face confusing or difficult situations when our when our hearts or our flesh are wanting to pull us in one direction we try to remind each other listen god blesses obedience god meets us when we obey not in material wealth or comfort but in spiritual comfort and spiritual provision and in fellowship with him. We never regret obedience. You never regret repentance and returning to God. You never regret trusting him. This Sunday, or excuse me, this past Tuesday, in our men's Tuesday morning Bible study, we're we're looking through the Psalms, and we were in Psalm 4 past Tuesday. And I'll close with this. In Psalm, Psalm 4, David's in trouble. David, David's experiencing chaos. David's in a place of anxiety. And it's anxiety from within and without. People are attacking him. He's he's questioning in, in this difficult place. And he says in verse three, Psalm four, verse three. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So the life of faith says, life is hard, life is messy, life is confusing. But I know that the Lord has set me apart for himself. And I know that the Lord hears when I call to him. And so I'm going to go with God. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to step in obedience. and I'm going to trust that he'll meet as i obey let's pray father your eyes search to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong help to those who trust you you are looking for people who are depending on you you are eager to meet us and so lord would you help us to step into obedience i pray for those lord who have gone astray who have who have left the path of obedience who have left a life of trust lord that they would return home that they would come back to the altar and call upon christ, christ we pray